Well, isn't it a joy to be together and uh, to have uh, kind of people from both services together? I always enjoy uh, Fellowship Sunday for that reason. Uh, we all get to be together and to worship the Lord together and to just celebrate the fellowship that we have with Him and with one another. Uh, if you're visiting us for the first time, I uh, just want to introduce myself. I'm Pastor Brett, and we're so glad you're here. We pray uh, that your visit here will change you forever, uh, that not uh, being here but meeting the Lord Jesus Christ here will change you forever. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. The book of Daniel is a wonderful book of the Old Testament. Daniel prophesied in difficult times, lived in difficult times. You know, one of the greatest challenges that believers face, have faced throughout history, and face in our own time and place, the greatest challenges that we face is not to become discouraged. Scripture continually says, take heart, be of good courage. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Discouragement, depression, demoralization is a constant challenge, and we are all tempted at times to become demoralized by the constant drumbeat of bad news that we hear. Day after day, and sometimes hour by hour, we receive news and notifications on our phones of some really depressing and discouraging and demoralizing things. It feels like there's just a constant drumbeat of bad news and very little good news. So we're all tempted at times to become demoralized. But we must resist that temptation. Because demoralized people are passive people. Demoralized people are passive people. The wind is knocked out of you. The courage is sucked out of you. And you become passive. You're just a cork in the bobbing sea. Passive people are easy for the devil to move. And they are easy for him to defeat. So my purpose today is to encourage you. And I mean that in the literal sense of that word. To put courage in you to encourage you. And I think there are two basic approaches, as I was thinking about this, that I could take. There's two basic approaches to encouraging someone when they're feeling demoralized. You can try to convince him that the situation is not nearly as bad as he thinks. That's one way to encourage a demoralized person. It's not as bad as you think. Second way is to try to convince him that he has everything that he needs to face and overcome any challenge, particularly the ones he's facing. Now, in regard to that first approach, I do think that modern believers can be a bit mistaken in our perceptions. We tend to think that the situation now is worse than it's ever been before. But that's because we didn't live through some other things in history. We don't experientially know what it was like to live during the Babylonian invasion, the time of Nero, the Dark Ages, or more recently, World War II. 
And we've forgotten how bad the spiritual and moral and political situation was here in the U.S. as recently as the 1960s and 70s. So the reason it so often seems to us that things are so much worse than ever before is not always because there is actually more evil in the world. It's not always because there's an increase in evil in this fallen world. Sometimes it's because technology has made us more aware of how much evil there really is in the world and how much evil there's always been. Technology is making us much more experientially aware of the depravity of man. Not too long ago, if there was a massacre on the other side of the world, or if there was a grisly murder in a different state, you probably wouldn't have even known about it. There's no way for the news to get to you. But technology now enables us to know what is going on in another city, another state, even another country, and sometimes to know these things in real time, and sometimes to have firsthand or video evidence and testimonies of it. So sometimes we're filled with an inordinate sense of doom and gloom simply because we are hearing more bad news from more places more often than ever before. We hear more bad news in a single month than our great-grandparents heard in their entire lives, not because bad things weren't happening, but because the news of those things were very localized. In other words, it may be an increase in the quantity of information, not an increase in the quantity of evil, which is causing us to perceive that things are so much worse than ever before. I want you to think about this from a real practical standpoint. When our ancestors, right, our great-great-grandparents, when they sat on a bench in a park, what did they do? They watched children play. They watched someone pushing a child on a swing set. What do we do? When we go to the park and sit on park benches, we're not only watching that parent push that sweet little child on the swing set, we also have our phones out and we're watching a desperate parent hand their child over a barbed wire fence to a soldier in Afghanistan. No wonder we perceive things as getting so bad so quickly. So in that sense, I think that it is legitimate for me to try to use that first method to encourage you. From a historical perspective, things now may not be quite as bad as they may seem to us the next time we sit on a park bench and we have one eye on the children and one eye on our smartphones or our not-so-smartphones. Ecclesiastes 1.9, this is not just my opinion, Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so there is nothing new under the sun. People argue now, they argued then. Now, they didn't have social media to argue, they had to actually argue face to face, but they still argued. People were still wicked, people still did terrible things. There's nothing new under the sun. However, while it is true, as the scriptures say, in that broad proverbial sense, 
of the book of Ecclesiastes. While there is nothing new under the sun, there's no new categories of evil. It's not like the depravity of man was much less in the past and is much greater now. No, the depravity of man has stayed constant from the fall of Adam and will until the Lord's return. While there is nothing new under the sun and while our perception of how bad things are can be distorted by the flood of information which modern technology brings, scripture does say that as we get closer to the last days, things will get really, really tough. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, right? Human depravity and its manifestation ebbs and flows throughout history, and in the last days, particularly difficult times will come. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, we know that we don't know and that we can't know how close we are to the last days, right? Jesus said no one would know the day or the hour. The only thing we know is that we're getting closer, right? We're closer now than we've been before. That's all we know. And since difficult times will come in the last days, we can't always rely on that first method of encouragement. Well, it's not as bad as I think. Someday it will be, then maybe worse. Maybe worse than we could even imagine at this point. So I want to focus this morning not on the first method of encouragement, but the second one. I want to convince you that you already have in Christ everything you need to face and overcome any trial and temptation that you may face in the future. You have sufficiency in Christ for whatever may come whether times will be relatively easy from a historical perspective, whether they will be relatively hard from a historical perspective, whatever may come, good or bad, you have everything you need to face it and to remain faithful in and through it. As noted in the bulletin, the title of this sermon is The Unconquerable Power of Fellowship with God. And I chose this topic because today is Fellowship Sunday, so you preach on fellowship. But that name, Fellowship Sunday, is more than just a description of a much-loved tradition here at Calvary Bible Church where we share a combined service and then have outdoor baptisms and food and fellowship. What we are doing today is celebrating a reality, a reality that can and should drown out the drumbeat of bad news that we're hearing every day and fill our hearts with a chorus of joy and rejoicing. There is something that should speak louder to our hearts than the drumbeat of bad news, and that is the gospel, the good news. The way to not be demoralized is to not have your attention so much on the bad news that you forget the good news, the good news of the gospel. So what is it that can turn gloom to joy, that can turn sorrow into rejoicing, that can give us renewed hope and courage regardless of whether the times ahead will be good or bad? It is simply and profoundly this, we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another. That truth should change everything, everything. 
1 John 1, 3 says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, right? This is the fellowship among believers. If you have come to faith in Christ, you now are in fellowship with everyone else who has faith in Christ. You're part of this grand spiritual body that is all over the world and all throughout the generations, this great cloud of witnesses, this huge spiritual family. You have fellowship with us, the Apostle John says. But that's the minor good news. Here's the major good news. And indeed, our fellowship, right, that corporate fellowship of all believers is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is amazing. We have fellowship not only with one another. This is not just a social club. This is not just, you know, birds of the feather flocking together or, you know, whatever. It's not a tribe or a clan. It's not even just a society of like-minded people. It is a fellowship of those who are united with Christ by faith. And so they have fellowship with him and therefore with one another. Oxford defines the word fellowship as a friendly association, especially with people who share one's interests. But the biblical term as defined by Lunida, the Greek term koinonia, refers to a close personal relationship and an intricate involvement in each other's lives. So I want you to think of what it means to say that we have fellowship with God. This means we have a close personal relationship and that God and us are intricately involved in each other's lives. He in yours and you are involved, you have communion in his life, the eternal life that he has, the life of grace and love. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that the core idea of koinonia is participation. It is partnership. It's the binding together and the sharing, the mutual sharing. In other words, God is our friend. He cares about us and We're involved in his life and he and ours. We have a personal relationship. We have communion with him. He is intricately involved in every aspect and details of our lives and he holds the future. History, as it has been said before, is his story. And he's in charge. We have fellowship with God and that should change everything in our mindset. It should change how we react to the news. It should change whether we look to the future with a foreboding sense of doom and gloom or whether we look forward to the future with a sense of anticipation and excitement about what the Lord will do regardless of whether the circumstances in front of us will be hard or easy. What is the sovereign Lord of the universe going to do in the future? I don't know, but it's really exciting to find out. This should change how we live and what we live for. So I want to take you to Daniel 11 because I think this is a passage which reminds us of the unconquerable power of fellowship with God. Now I want to take you to Daniel 11 and first give you a little bit of context. Daniel 11 through 12 is a prophetic passage, right? It describes two time periods. 
Daniel 11 verses 1 through 35 describe the events that will take place before the first coming of Christ. Now those events were future for Daniel, but they're now in the past for us. Then Daniel 11:36 and continue on to chapter 12 describe events that will take place before the second coming of Christ. And those events are still future for us as well. They were future for Daniel and they are still future for us. So as the Lord is showing Daniel the future, he shows him two eras, two eras of time. Two eras of time that are separated by time in between, but the prophecies about these two eras appear right next to each other in the text. This is sometimes what we call prophetic foreshortening. Prophetic foreshortening. Key events in both the near future to the prophet Daniel and the distant future are revealed to him by God. But how much time is revealed in between those two eras is not revealed, and so they appear together in the text. Scholars often describe this using the illustration of a man in the mountains. I don't know if you've spent much time in the mountains, but when you're looking down, let's say, the Front Range in Colorado, and you're in the mountains, you often see a peak that's fairly nearby to you. And behind that, you can see another peak and perhaps another one after that. But what you cannot see is what lies in between those two mountains. If you were to take a picture from there, the the peaks in the mountain may even appear to be touching or connected, but really they can be an amazing distance apart. You know this if you've ever climbed because you get to what you think is the peak and then there's this long valley and you gotta go way down and then way back up to the next peak that you couldn't see and again and again all the way up to whatever one you're trying to reach. That's what we find in Daniel 11. The events of verses one through 35 take place from Daniel's time until shortly before the birth of Christ. They're events which are a couple centuries in the future from Daniel, and then they take place from a couple hundred years after the time of Daniel until pretty shortly before the birth of Christ. And verses 1 through 35 focus on events associated with a wicked king named Antiochus Epiphanes. Then the events of verses 36 and following on into chapter 12 They take place in the last days, and they focus on the wicked king which Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadowed, the Antichrist. Now, the transition is marked in Daniel 11 by the phrase in verse 35, the phrase, until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. And then by the transition word, then, at the beginning of verse 36. So there's a transition in the text between verses 35 and 36, and that's where the first peak and the second peak are divided. Verses 1 through 35, again, covers the time period of approximately 539 B.C. to shortly before the birth of Jesus. And verses 1136 and following covers a time that is yet future. Now, what's interesting in Daniel 11, just in the context of, lead, of the passage leading up to the verse I want to focus on, is that there are dozens of extremely specific prophecies in this chapter, 
all of which were still future to Daniel. In fact, most of them take place several hundred years after he lived. And the historical evidence from multiple places and sources in the ancient Near East showed that these prophecies were fulfilled in striking detail. For example, verse 3 prophesies the rise of Alexander the Great. This is remarkable because when Daniel wrote, the Greek city-states were divided and they were not major powers on the world stage. So to prophesy a king arising from Greece who would conquer the world is an amazing thing. Verse 4 prophesies the death of Alexander the Great at an early age and prophesies that his empire would not be passed down hereditarily to his children, but instead would be divided into four parts, which is exactly what we know from history happened. Then in the following verses of chapter 11, there are dozens of other very specific prophecies about the back and forth wars between the Ptolemies, who were headquartered in in what is modern Egypt, and the Seleucids, headquartered in modern-day Syria. It even includes remarkably specific details of the failed diplomatic marriage of Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy II Philadelphus, to Antiochus II Theos of the Seleucids. So I'm just telling you, anyone who is fair-minded and doubts the divine inspiration of Scripture should have all their doubts removed by the exact fulfillment of dozens of specific prophecies made in Daniel chapter 11 several centuries before they occur. And the fulfillment of these prophecies should be a tremendous encouragement to all of us because what do they teach us? What do they teach us? Well, it's that God knows and God's in charge. If the near prophecies of Daniel 11 were fulfilled so literally and so exactly, so will the far prophecies, the ones about the end times. If Daniel's prophecies about the events which preceded the first coming of Christ came true, then so will his prophecies about the Lord's second coming. And what does he prophesy about the second coming? Look, for example, at Daniel 12, 1 through 3. It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. All right, these are remarkable words and just as the ones in the early part of Daniel 11 came true, so will these. And so you should be greatly encouraged. Daniel 11 has already powerfully reminded us that what God reveals in Scripture always comes true. And that's encouraging because we know what is written in the Bible about how the whole story ends, how the whole history of everything ends, and it ends with the triumph of Christ. We know who wins in the end, and we have fellowship with the one who wins in the end. We're his friends and he ours. That means we're on the winning side. So it doesn't matter how dark the days 
have been or are or may be in the future, we know the end result. And those who know the end result should never waver in the difficult times in between. This is what the people in Daniel 11, verse 32, the people that we're gonna talk about next, this is what they knew. They knew that what God had promised would come true, and they were willing to stake their lives on that, their livelihoods on that. They were willing to stake everything on that. They had faith. God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to fulfill all of his promises gave them the courage that they needed to stand strong in one of the worst times in the history of Israel. And I want to take you now to that history. Look at Daniel 11, verse 27. In verse 27, the Seleucid king, who controls the northern kingdom in modern-day Syria, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, he sits down for diplomatic discussions with his Ptolemaic rival from the southern kingdom in modern-day Egypt. So look at verse 27. It says, As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. So then, verse 28 records that Antiochus returns home bearing the wealthy gifts he had been given as part of that treaty. And on the way, he had to pass through the Holy Land, right? He's heading from modern-day Egypt up to modern-day Syria, so he has to pass through the Holy Land. And on the way, it says that he imposes his will on Israel. Look at verse 28. It says, then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. So on his way back, he imposes his will upon Israel, he oppresses them, and then he returns to his own land. And there's this now peace treaty between the northern and southern kingdoms. But eventually the peace treaty breaks down because they, both kings lied to each other at the negotiating table. That doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> but as verse 29 records, the peace treaty breaks down. So Antiochus Epiphany gathers his army and heads south to fight. But as he's heading south to fight, something happens which thwarts his plans. Look at verse 29 through the beginning of verse 30. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged. What is this? Well, he's heading south as an army, and he thinks he has the advantage. But then ships of Kittim arrive. arrive. What is Kittim? Well, Kittim is an ancient word used in the time of Daniel to refer to the area of the Mediterranean where the Roman Empire is going to arise. Rome wasn't yet a major world power when Daniel wrote, so he uses the term which his audience there in Medo-Persia in his time in the fifth century BC would understand. Now, according to ancient historical sources, both from the Romans and other sources in the Middle East, when Antiochus Epiphanes invaded the southern kingdom of the Ptolemies, he had a very good chance of winning. He had some advantages, some military advantages. This alarmed the Roman Senate. 
who was kind of a fledgling state at this point, because if Antiochus conquered Egypt, he would have control of the whole Eastern Mediterranean, and that would present a clear threat to Rome's huge ambitions. So the Senate dispatched ships carrying an ambassador, a man named Papilius Leonis. And his job was to warn Antiochus that if he invaded Egypt, if he continued on his invasion of Egypt, Rome would declare war and help the Ptolemies. And when they met, they have this meeting, and Popilius demands that Antiochus turn back. Now Antiochus instantly knew he was in trouble because while he might be able to defeat the Ptolemies, he could not defeat them and Rome together, and he knew it. So he's now in this confrontation with this Roman ambassador, and to save face, he says, well, I need some time to consult with my advisors. What happens next is a really famous moment in history. The Roman senator, Papilius, draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus Epiphanes and tells him, I must have a reply to give to the Roman Senate before you leave this circle. Antiochus had no choice but to comply. And so he was completely and totally humiliated in front of his troops. You know, there's no one as vicious as an arrogant and prideful and vain man whose ego has just been shattered. And so Antiochus and his army begin their humiliating march back home, which once again takes them through what? through the Holy Land. So look again at verse 30. Ships of Kittim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened. Now again, keep in mind, Daniel is writing hundreds of years before these events. Ships of Kittim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Now, if you think times are hard for believers now, let me just tell you that nothing in modern times, nothing, comes even close to what the believers in the Holy Land experienced during the temper tantrum of Antiochus and Epiphanes. Ancient historians record that he slaughtered tens of thousands of people just in a temper tantrum, just in a rage because he had been humiliated. He tried to defend this slaughter by saying that he had heard reports that when he was humiliated by the Roman ambassador, the people in the Holy Land had rejoiced. Perhaps they had, he was a bad dude. But he slaughters tens of thousands of people and he sells many tens of thousands more into slavery. Then he does the unthinkable, something even the Babylonians, the Assyrians had not done. He sacrifices a pig on the temple altar and has his men pour its blood throughout the temple to desecrate it. And then he sets up a pagan idol in the Holy of Holies, what's called the abomination of desolation. Furthermore, he outlawed the reading and possession of the scriptures. He forbade the Old Testament believers from practicing their faith, and all who continued to practice their faith were horribly persecuted. So this is a terrible time of trial and tribulation for every Old Testament believer living in the Holy Land. 
But the text tells us it was not just a time of trial and tribulation. It was a time of great temptation. The connection between trial and temptation is so strong that the New Testament only has one word for both. Trial is temptation. Temptation is trial. And Antiochus brings not just tribulation, but temptation to the people in the Holy Land. He didn't just use the stick to get them to abandon their faith. He also dangled a carrot. Verse 30 at the end says that he will show regard for whom? Who does he have regard for? Who did he show his favor to? He will show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. That's how you get on his good side. Forsake the Holy Covenant, you get on his good side. Antiochus presented the people with a stark choice. If they betrayed the Lord, they would be welcomed into his benefactory rewards. They could enjoy all of the immoral, hedonistic pleasures of pagan culture. And he's actually famous in history for offering to the people these hedonistic, immoral parties, I guess you could call them. Trying to remember there's children in the audience. (laughs) All you got to do is betray the Lord and you can have all of the pleasures of pagan culture. Benefits, social standing, economic opportunities, everything. But if you remain faithful to your covenant with God, you will face poverty, mockery, slavery, or death. One of those four things. So the believers were facing both the trial of persecution and the temptation of the hedonistic pagan lifestyle which their new rulers were pushing on them and offering to them. Now as is often the case, the temptation turned out to be a lot more dangerous than the trial. Look at the first part of our key verse, verse 32. It says, by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Notice the phrase, by smooth words. Satan and his minions and his false teachers are liars, right? Satan is the father of lies. And those who follow him spread those lies. But they're good liars. In fact, they're smooth liars. Their words are smooth. They sound reasonable, persuasive, right, and most importantly, flattering. In fact, the English Standard Version translates this Hebrew phrase as seducing by flattery. It says he seduced them by flattery. Smooth words, flattering words. That's Satan's strategy. He lures people into sin and deception by smooth words which stoke their egos. And he does so with flattery. Join us, they say, and you'll be one of the smart ones. You'll be on the right side of history. You'll be the modern ones, the popular ones, the enlightened ones, the progressive ones, the elite ones. Just join us, and all this can be yours. 
you know, when this type of demonic flattery, and it is demonic flattery, falls on the ears of someone who craves the approval and the respect of the pagan culture around them, the results are predictable. They turn to godlessness and they act wickedly. As verse 32 predicts, what starts as a desire for the world's approval ends in an imitation of the world's ways. If you want the world's approval, you will imitate their ways. If you want the Lord's approval, you'll imitate his ways. Make your choice. Make your choice. So verse 32 begins with a warning. If you crave the approval of unbelievers, you will be deceived and you will be defiled. You will be spiritually deceived and you will be morally defiled. You will be seduced and deceived by smooth, flattering words and you will become godless and you will act wickedly. So I want to exhort you in the name of Christ. Do not crave the approval of our pagan culture. If you do, you've already lost. You have already lost. If you crave the approval of the unbelieving culture, you have already lost. You've already surrendered. And you're already on a path that will end in godlessness and in wickedness. The Bible continually warns us against the danger of craving the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Jesus said that's what was wrong with the Pharisees. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And James says, anyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You'll be unfaithful to the covenant. You'll betray the Lord and his people. The warning of Daniel 11.32 is clear. If you crave the respect, admiration, approval, or acceptance of our godless culture, you've already surrendered, and you are just waiting now to hear what your new masters tell you to think, to say, and to do next. You have surrendered the mastery to them because the one whose approval you seek is your Lord. So who is your Lord? Is it Christ or you know, the popular kid three doors down in your dorm room. He's a pretty bad God. The key to staying faithful in the years to come will be to stop trying to win the world's approval. And the church needs to get over this as well. We're all so caught up. But what will the world think? What will the world think? What will the world think? I don't care what the world thinks. I care what Christ thinks. I want to obey Christ and let the chips fall where they may. Don't fall for smooth words. The world only gives its approval at the cost of our love, our loyalty, and our obedience to Christ. That's the price they charge for their approval. Don't fall for the sales pitch. Instead, follow the example of the faithful Old Testament saints who are described in the second half of verse 32. It says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. There's the model to follow, right? We face hard times. We need to 
do two things. We need to look backwards to the faithfulness of the faithful saints who have endured the hard times before us. Then we need to look forward to the promises of Christ and the example behind us and the promises before us should help sustain us in the hard times. Now, in this marvelous phrase here in Daniel eleven thirty two, we see three qualities we see three qualities which enabled these Old Testament believers to stand against the trials and temptations brought upon them by Antiochus Epiphanes. And by the way, since Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel's prophecy is a small a antichrist, remember John says in 1 John, many antichrists have gone into the world, right? And they foreshadow the one to come. Since Antiochus Epiphanes is a small a antichrist who foreshadows the coming of the capital A antichrist in the future, the lessons of verse 32 are ones we'll need more and more the closer we get. What are the lessons? What are the lessons these faithful Old Testament believers teach us? Well, there's three. Know your God. Display strength and take action. Know your God, display strength, and take action. That's how you can triumph over trials and temptations, whatever they may be. Now of these three, I think the first is the most important because the way verse 32 describes it is as that which causes the other two. The people, it says, who know their God will display strength and take action. Cause and effect. If you know your God, you will display strength and you will take action. Cause and effect. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. This is, makes kind of knowing whose side everybody's on a little easier, doesn't it? People who don't know their God will falter and not take action. But those who truly know God will not waver. They will not remain passive in the face of evil. Rather, they will stand strong and they will take decisive action. So the key to overcoming trials and temptations, whether those are like the ones the Old Testament believers faced under Antiochus Epiphanes, or they're the ones you're facing in your life now, or they're ones that believers in the future will face as the end times draw near, the key to overcoming them all is to know your God. Know him. Know him. Because when you know him, you will have what I described in the title of the message, the unconquerable power of fellowship with God. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8.31. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter how many soldiers Antiochus Epiphanes have, has. We have God doesn't matter how many foes there are if we have the Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is what Daniel knew. Remember, our author here is Daniel. What did he do in his life? Well, he faced the lion's den. His friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faced the fiery furnace. And he prophesied about these other believers who would face the rage and the hedonistic enticements of Antiochus Epiphanes, and they would stand strong. These people knew that there was unconquerable power in fellowship with God. 
They were people who knew their God. So all the powers of hell and all the rage of men and all the temptations of the flesh could not overpower their faith because their faith was in something bigger than all that. They knew God is sovereign, not Antiochus Epiphanes. They knew Antiochus was powerful and filled with rage, but God is all-powerful and filled with grace and love. They knew Antiochus would reign for a little while, but God will reign forever. They knew Antiochus was a wicked and cruel king, but they knew God is the king of all kings, the one who will shatter them in the end. I don't know what trials and temptations you're facing today. Don't know. Don't know what happened this week. Don't know what's going on in in each of your lives. I don't know what trials you're facing. I don't know what temptations you're facing. And I don't know what trials and temptations we all will face in the future. But I do know the key to overcoming them will be knowing our God. The solution for every facet and every aspect of every challenge will be found in the attributes of God, in who he is. What, let's ask the question practically, what can restrain and protect you from the enticements and temptations of the dark prince of this fallen world? Answer, knowing the holiness of God. What can lift you out of the muck and mire of sin, change you and give you hope? Answer, knowing the grace of God. What can keep you from craving the approval of the world and being seduced by their smooth words? Answer, knowing the love of God. You're not going to crave the approval of evil people if you already have the approval of God. What can give you courage to stand alone against overwhelming odds like Daniel did? Knowing the sovereignty of God. See, for every challenge, the answer is found in the attributes of God. Beloved, if we are a people who know their God, then Neither Antiochus Epiphanes and those like him, nor the wicked powers of our day, nor the Antichrist who will rise in the future will be able to stand against the unconquerable power of our fellowship with the true and living God. Nothing. What does Paul say in Romans 8, right? It's that great, encouraging passage that says just that. Our fellowship with God is an unconquerable power. Who will separate us from the love of Christ, right? There's our fellowship, right? The love of Christ, right? What can break that fellowship, right? What's stronger than that fellowship? Well, let's consider what could come against that. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we, listen to this, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, right? Our fellowship with God is an unconquerable power. In fact, it is a power which super conquers. It overwhelmingly conquers. It rolls over all other strengths and powers and forces, and it does so with ease. For I am convinced, Paul writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our fellowship with God is an unconquerable power. 
So the first and most vital step is to know God. Not just to know about him, but to really know him. To know him personally. Philippians 3.7, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of what? Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, right? Those Old Testament believers under Antiochus Epiphanes, they, they lost everything from a human standpoint, but they had Christ, right? They had their holy covenant with the promise of the coming Messiah, I count all things, Paul says now, as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then here you hear the cry of his heart, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, you know what? I'm going to walk with Christ. And I know that path leads to a cross, but after the cross to an empty grave and to a throne on high. So I'm with him. I'm with him, fellowship with him. I want to know him. Those who have a personal relationship with God by faith And those who really know him well because they constantly study and meditate on his holy word and they constantly devote themselves to prayer, these people will not be weak and they will not be passive. They will, as Daniel 11, 32 says, stand strong and they will act. So that is the last two points of our message. Stand strong and take action. No matter what happens, do not be moved from the theological and moral convictions of your faith. Display strength. Stand strong. Don't be moved. Contend earnestly for the faith, Jude says. And notice what else Jude says. He begins his letter by saying, I am urging you to contend earnestly for the faith, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints and not subject to revision in the 21st century. And then he encourages us, verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever, amen. Now you ever get discouraged, just go read Jude a little bit, especially his ending. Stand strong. And then take action. Stand strong and then take action. We cannot, we must not remain passive in the face of evil. Satan certainly isn't passive. So it will be a disaster if we, the body of Christ, are. You need to wake up, church. Wake up, Christians. The enemy is on the march. The Shattered souls of his victims are all around us. Wake up. You will receive power, the Lord says, to do what? Acts 1.8. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Take action 
And what action? Well, gospel action. Preach the gospel, share the gospel, live the gospel. Now is not the time for a drowsy, comfortable, passive approach to the Christian faith. Frankly, there's never a time for that, but certainly that time has passed. Especially now when whole generations are being steamrolled by evil and even believers are being seduced by the smooth words of the enemy, now more than ever we need to wake up, stand up, and suit up in the whole armor of God and take the fight to the enemy. We need to go on a rescue mission to those still outside the gates of salvation. I think we've all seen and and been struck by the heroism of these young men and women who are in Afghanistan trying to help those people escape, those who are still outside that wall dividing a horrible future from a brighter future. We've seen the heroism of the young men and women who are serving there and who have given their lives to try to rescue others. We need young people like that in the spiritual realm as well. There are souls outside the wall, and we need to rescue them. We've also heard in recent days that even some older retired soldiers are, you know, popping the buttons on their old uniforms as they travel over to try to save some buddies. We need some Christians to come out of retirement. You've gone into early retirement spiritually, you need to get out of retirement. You've got buddies outside the wall, go get them. So what is our call today? It's to know your God, display strength, and take action. On September 19th, I'm going to be explaining the action we need to take. And we've written a a mission statement about the action we need to take. It's going to be a sermon series I'm going to entitle Go, Gather, and Grow. Those are based on the three participles in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And those are the actions we need to take. We need to go to the lost. We need to gather them into the fellowship of the church. And we need to help them grow in obedience to Christ. We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with one another. That changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Fellowship Sunday when we celebrate that great reality. We have fellowship with you. And we have fellowship with one another. Lord, may we, armed with that great reality, encouraged By that great truth, may we go to the lost. May we gather them into the fellowship of the church and may we help them to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. Lord, we want to be people who know our God so that we will stand strong and take action. May that be the firm resolve and the heart's desire of every single one of us and of us corporately, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.